Luke chapter 15. And you'll find this on page 1049 in the church Bibles. A familiar passage that we're going to look at this morning. Luke chapter 15, verse 11 through to 32. Luke 15, 11 to 32. David asked if I would do a, a brief uh, series on one of the Gospels or an aspect of the Gospels. And so I've decided to do a, a short series on some of the parables of Jesus. And so today is uh, the first of those. So we read from Luke 15 and verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother he has, has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, 
All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Just a brief prayer together. Let us pray. Father, we thank you again for the awesome privilege it is for us to fellowship with one another. And yet more than that, to be in the presence of the living God and to come and to freely praise you and to worship you and to give you all the glory that is worthy of who you are and your own name. We thank you for your word We thank you that it is the word of eternal truth. And we come at this time and we pray that you would enable us to have hearts that are open, minds that are attentive to that which you have to say to us, that we might be changed for your own glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I think it's fair to say that this passage that we're looking at this morning, this parable, is probably one of the most well-known passages in the Bible, if not um, the most well-known in the whole of Scripture. And I think what tends to happen with this particular parable is that we tend to find ourselves often focusing almost exclusively on the story concerning the younger brother, the younger son who asks for his share of the father's inheritance. He goes off and he squanders his wealth on wild living. He comes to his senses and then is reconciled and restored and welcomed by the father. And that is for good reason because it is a wonderful picture of the salvation that God holds out to those who are repentant, those who have turned to him through Christ. And so we are actually going to spend this morning looking at that part of the story. But I think if we're going to get to the real crux of this parable and what's really happening here, we need to understand and remind ourselves of something regarding the context in which Jesus was actually first telling this story. And the place we see that is in verse 1 of chapter 15. In verse 1, where Luke tells us this, he says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear him, that is, Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus 
told them this parable. And of course, he went on to tell the parable of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and then this one that we're looking at together. In other words, what is happening here then is that Jesus is in the company of two groups of people. On the one hand, there are the tax collectors and the sinners. Now, obviously, we know that we are all sinners. All have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. But when Luke mentions sinners here in inverted commas, he's speaking specifically about the people who at this time would be viewed as the obvious outcasts of society. People who were known to have a bad reputation, a very bad reputation, and who would be frowned upon because they never made any effort to keep to the many purity laws that had been devised by the religious establishment. And what is happening here is that Jesus, the Son of God, is spending time speaking with those people. And as he's speaking to them, there is another group of people, the Pharisees, who are being cynical, they're being resentful, and they're being hostile about what is taking place before them. And so as we think about this parable this morning, what we have here in effect is a picture of precisely what was unfolding with these two groups of people. It was something that actually happened all the way through the ministry of Jesus Christ. Here he is holding out the way of truth and life and forgiveness and restoration to this increasing band of rebels represented by the younger son in the story. And as this hope is being proclaimed and presented by Jesus, at the same time, he is being met with the self-righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law represented by the elder son in the story. And so what I want to do uh, today is we're going to look at this in two parts. First of all, this morning, we'll focus on the challenge and the encouragement to the younger brothers of society, those who are lost in rebellion against God. And then this evening, we're going to think about the challenge and the rebuke to the elder brothers, those who are lost in false religion. And so let's think about this younger brother together. And the first thing that we're reminded of here as we think about his life and what we're told in this parable is the solemn truth that the life of every single restored rebel, that is all who come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, it begins with offense against the Father. It begins with offense against the father. In verse 12, we're told that this younger son asked his father for his share of the inheritance. And it's very clear that he did so in order that he could leave home and head for the far country. In other words, at the heart of the offense here is the fact that the boy not only asks for his share of the inheritance prior to the death of his father, which for the younger son in particular, would have shown a real blatant disregard for the father's authority. 
But more serious was what that revealed concerning the state of his heart. Because what it revealed was that the deepest desire of his heart was to live independent of the Father, without reference to his Father, and with a complete disregard for the care and the kindness of his Father. Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And that is precisely what is happening here with this younger son. He's in the process of turning from his father's way to his own way. And having turned to his own way, we'll shortly see him going astray. Now, friends, don't miss the obvious truth here, which is that this is a picture of precisely the guilt and the offense that you and I shared in the minute that we were conceived by virtue of the fact that we belong to Adam's fallen race. The Bible says there is no one who seeks God, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When we honestly examine ourselves, even now here this morning, if we're here as a Christian this morning, when we look back on our lives with sincerity and in truth, we must face the fact that if it was not for the gracious intervention of God in our lives, we would be absolutely fixated with living our life according to our own agenda, to satisfy our own desires, to live according to our own rules, and to ultimately make a God of ourselves with our backs turned towards the one who made us. What is the outworking of all this? Well, the next thing we see here from verse 13 is the sheer waywardness and the futility of this life of rebellion. That is this life that is lived apart from the Father. In other words, you notice that there is a progression here in this story. We go from this nature we are born with, which is predisposed towards independence from God and turning away from the Father, which is described in the Scriptures as our iniquity. And that independent nature then expresses itself in a life of sinful activity, which is often described as our transgressions. Look at verse 13. It says, Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Now just picture 
for a second this young boy as he made his way to the far country. There he was, his back turned to his father, and all of that daily rhythm and responsibility and what he no doubt saw as being the boring regularity of life was a thing of the past. He had a huge wad of cash in his pocket. And you can just imagine as he looked out ahead towards the glittering lights of Never Never Land, you can just imagine him saying to himself, the world is my oyster. No more accountability for me. No more having to do things on other people's terms. No more having to worry about someone looking over my shoulder all the time. I can do what I want, whenever I want, however I want. But then, what happens? First of all, he realized what every person will one day realize who views their wealth as nothing more than the means by which we can satisfy our own fallen lusts, which is that there comes a day when the pot is either empty or it no longer carries any value to purchase even a temporary relief because you've entered into the solemn reality of eternity where these things count for absolutely nothing. And secondly, he finds himself not only devoid of the means of any pleasure, namely finances, but he finds himself utterly emptied of all human dignity. Now, in Jewish law, the occupation of a pig herder was considered to be so debased that anyone working with pigs was viewed as being cursed. And the fact that the boy was now in daily contact with animals which the Old Testament declared to be unclean would have meant that under Jewish law, this boy would not be permitted to observe the Sabbath day or to fellowship with God's people. In other words, here is a picture given to us by Jesus of where the life of sin and rebellion against God will always end up. It is a promise that never delivers. There comes a day when the money is spent and the party is over and the person is left with nothing but the shame and the disgrace of what they deep down know they have become. And worst of all, as one who is unclean, on account of a life of unconfessed sin, they are separated from the goodness of God's care and from loving fellowship with his family. Proverbs 14 verse 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. And yet... As long as the sun still rises in the morning to shine upon this earth, there is still hope. There is still the possibility of return and restoration and reconciliation with 
the Father. And what we have next in this story from verses 17 to 20 is just a wonderful picture of the repentance that marks a rebel's return. I want to mention four things just very briefly. First, in verse 17, it says, when he came to his senses. The most common word that's used for repentance in the Bible is the Greek word metanoia, which occurs over 50 times in the New Testament. And that word metanoia basically translates as a change of mind. And this is precisely what is happening here. It's really the starting point of what it means to become a Christian. It means to have been given a new perspective, a new understanding about who we are, who God is, what He has done for us in Christ, and our desperate need of Him. Second, in verse 18, having come to his senses, we're told that the boy then said, I will set out, go back to my father, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. In other words, just as the father in this story desires a personal and an individual individual relationship with both of his boys, God is a personal God. He deals with us individually and personally. On the day of judgment, we will be judged not according to the life of our family members, our friends, the circles that we move in, not according to our society or the world in which we live, but on account of who we are and our own lives. And so having come to our senses, we must honestly and unreservedly confess our personal sin to the Father. Third, there is the humility of servanthood. He says in verse 19, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. And so this is a boy who is not running to his father with an attitude that says, I demand, I have rights. Don't you remember who I am? Don't you remember all the things I did for you in the past? No, that was an attitude that marked the boy's rebellion against the father. But the attitude that marks his return to the father is one that says, I am not worthy. It says, so far is the extent of my rebellion. So honest I am about acknowledging the depth of my sin. I realize that if we want to talk about justice and what is fair, then I should not be treated as a son, but at the very best, as a hired man. Someone once said that the doorway to heaven is not only very narrow, but it is extremely low. Because you do not walk into heaven with your head held high, your chest puffed out, and your shoulders back. You walk into heaven with your head bowed low because you realize that just like 
the younger brother in this story that in and of ourselves we are not worthy. And the only thing that makes us worthy is the grace of the living God in his son Jesus Christ. And fourth, it says in verse 20, so he got up and went to his father. What a powerful and wonderful little verse that is. He got up and he went to his father. In other words, it's no use coming to our senses, realizing our waywardness, unless that acknowledgement of our failure is followed by a genuine resolve of the will. Now, for the boy, that meant what was probably a tortuous journey on foot back to his father. But for us here this morning, it means falling to our knees, asking Christ to forgive our sins, and rising to live a life in submission to him. Now, let's just pause at this point and just think again about the initial audience that Jesus was addressing. He's just told them the story of this boy who spectacularly messed up. But he's come to his senses and he's about to return home. And you can just imagine these tax collectors, these sinners, this group of rebels And there they are, they're gathered around Jesus. Maybe the crowd was beginning to get a wee bit bigger by this point. And you can just imagine them looking intently at Jesus as he's telling this story. And then maybe thinking to themselves, what is going to happen with this boy in the story? What's going to happen to this boy when he gets home? I mean, this guy is worse than I am. This guy's worse than all of us. Can there really be any hope for a boy who has so spectacularly offended his father and disgraced his father by his life of sin and this cycle of utter rebellion? And Jesus does not disappoint their intrigue. But instead, he provides them with what is one of the greatest presentations of God's grace in the New Testament. The picture of the God who restores rebels. Just as we start to think about this, let me say this. On the one hand, it is true to say that God loves the whole of humanity. That is what is known as his general love for the world. But at the same time, there is a special and specific kind of love with which he loves his elect children, those who were chosen in him, Ephesians 1 verse 4, before the foundation of the world. And I think what we see here in this story, in the restoration of this natural child, are just some of the symbols of this special and specific favor which God shows towards his adopted children. And so, just in closing, I want to highlight four of these very briefly. First, in verse 21, 
We're told that when the boy was still a long way off, the father saw him, was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And this kiss was simply a symbol at this time of the father's mercy and his forgiveness. It was his way of saying, wherever you have been and whatever you have done, I forgive you. Second, in verse 22, the father orders the best robe to be brought. Now, at this time, the best robe or the ceremonial robe was actually a mark of honor. It was something that a king would present to a visiting dignitary. And so what's happening here is that the father is effectively saying, take from this boy these sin-stained rags of unrighteousness and give him the best robe because the son is to be treated as nothing less than the guest of honor in my house. Third, he puts a ring on the boy's finger, probably a kind of signet ring. And at this time when such a ring was given from a father to a son or from a king to a prime minister, it symbolized the granting of authority or the transferal of authority. In other words, whereas the son asks to be made a servant, a person of no authority, the father by giving him this ring, is restoring him to the authority of sonship in his house. He orders sandals to be put on his feet. Sandals and shoes at this time were an item of real luxury. You would never have a slave wearing these. And so by putting sandals on his feet, he's simply saying this boy is no slave, but instead in my house, he is a free man. And finally, the most lavish symbol of all, in verse 23, we're told that the father ordered the fattened calf to be killed. And again, at this time, meat was very rarely eaten. And so to order the fattened calf was nothing less than a sign that this was to be a momentous day of celebration. This was to go down in the family album as the moment that nobody would ever forget. Friends, let me close by saying this this morning. We mustn't miss the fact that this is a picture that presents to us precisely and actually how God, our Heavenly Father, responds to all his true children when we turn from our sin and we come to him through faith in Jesus Christ. He does not kiss our cheek, but he forgives our sins by the precious blood of his Son. He does not put a cloak on our shoulders but he clothes us in the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. He does not give us a ring, 
but He marks us as a child of the living God by the sign and the seal of the Holy Spirit. And He does not kill the fattened calf, but He feeds us through the pure goodness that is in His Son and His Word. And He assures us of a place at the banquet of banquets in the eternity of his kingdom, the wedding feast of the Lamb. This is our God. This is our Savior. And this is the life that he holds out to every single person who will turn to him through trust and faith in Jesus Christ, his Son. Let us pray together.